All righty. So uh, Six Pack Lapidat, King of this podcast, and um, also my man LS. I'll, I'll let you actually do the intro when you come in, but um, a little bit special here. We got a special guest. Everybody's excited about it. And um, I'll let him introduce himself. We obviously opened it up uh, for people to send in their questions. We don't do that very often, but uh, this particular episode, it, it, it gave reason to. So Larry, I'll allow you to introduce yourself, a little bit of a background. Um, your resume is quite extensive, so we could be here a while. But <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let you give the, the quick intro Wikipedia version, sir. Sure. Uh, my name is Larry Maley. I'm the president of USA Powerlifting. Um, I've been the president now for 19 years, um, much longer than I anticipated, I have to say. Um, I've been a member of USA Powerlifting, previously the ADFPA, since 1983, um, and have served in a variety of functions over that time. Um, probably the one that was my favorite um, is not the presidency, I have to say, but um, was being the national team coach. I've coached 57 internationals now, um, including multiple world teams. And that has been the, the best part of it. Um, I've served on the IPF executive over two separate periods of time, first in 1999 until 2014. And I was reappointed this year. Um, I'm also the president of the NAPF. Um, I think sort of by default, but um, it sort of comes with the IPF executive position. Um, and I've done a variety of things within USA Powerlifting. I've been a competitor. Um, I've competed in nationals first in 1985 and last in 2012, I think. Can't remember. No, I competed in Pennsylvania, 2015. Um, I've competed in the Master World Championships and the NAPF Championships in bench nationals and open nationals and raw nationals and masters nationals when it was a separate event. Um, so I've have been around the track as a competitor as well. Um, but currently I'm the president and that's primarily um, what occupies me. Yeah, I bet. So you have been around the block, sir, to say the least. Uh, who wants to go next with their intro, Ryan or my man LS? I'll go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ryan Sills, I've uh, been a member of USA Parliament and ADFPA since 1992. Uh, so that puts me nearly 30 years in competition. Um, I've competed at the IPF Masters Worlds. I've competed at nationals over 15 times. Uh, I won, I think my first national championship was in 2000. I won junior nationals. Uh, that was back when we were still in gear. I know Larry remembers that. Uh, so I've had, I think I've been to four, four world championships in the Masters Division since then, uh, winning three. So yeah, it's, uh, I currently am state chair for Oregon. Uh, I've been on multiple committees over my time as well. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah that is, that's a little snapshot. And my man LS. Ellis McLean uh, from Texas. Um, got a few national championships, got a few world championships. Um, and I don't know, I've been on this this world team, honestly, um, USAPL uh, uh, national team uh, since uh, 2013, since I started uh, with USAPL. Um, 
obviously running a, uh, a simultaneous uh, podcast along Six Pack and King of Lifts with my uh, uh, Corner of the Circle podcast. So it's, uh, it's, it's a good time, man. We're excited to have you on, Larry. It's going to be fun. Bingo, bango. We got it down, fellas. So we'll start off. We opened it up, like I said, to some, some questions from the people, and then we'll get into some fun questions ourselves. Uh, one of the ones off the top is uh, in terms of athlete dues, and uh, you had mentioned, Larry, uh, real quick, that uh, some of this is already actually available um, elsewhere. Sure. Um, we actually do keep a budget. We do a perspective budget, and we do uh, compare it with actuals every year at the National Governing Body meeting. Unfortunately, though, we do those this year, given what's going on. But to, to answer briefly, um, the things that you can get by looking at the NGB minutes, we're largely member-supported. That's where the, the majority of our funds come from. Um, and those funds are, are essentially not earmarked. They go into a general fund. And the, I can tell you the biggest ticket items in terms of, of where that money goes is to drug testing about four hundred or four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year um, staff salaries essentially um, a little more than three hundred thousand dollars a year insurance about two hundred thousand um, liability insurance for the meat directors and directors and operators insurance and workers compensation insurance and all of the categories that we have to have as a business Beyond that, there are things that are sort of subsets of our budget. Um, the Arnold is one, which is, is largely supported by entry fees and sponsorship money, but that's sort of outside of the regular budget. The Arnold is, is generally self-supporting. That was my mandate when, when we went in 13 years ago, that it, it couldn't draw from the member money in general. And generally speaking, it breaks even. Sometimes we make some, sometimes we lose some, but that's about how it runs. Um, and then other categories of things, um, in and out money, our merchandising program, um, it makes money coming in, it costs money going out. It's about a break-even proposition. Um, world team fees, um, each person on the world team pays their, their, their team fee. Um, and from that money, um, we, we lose a considerable amount on world teams, by the way, about 200,000 a year. Um, but we pay for out-of-competition testing. Um, their entry fees go directly to the IPF and anti-doping fees, coaching fees, referee travel fees, um, the other things that come with fielding a world team. So those are the big ticket items in our budget. Um, uh, real quick, are, do, do you have, is there a lot of planes flying around your background? <laughs> we, we got I, a couple, we got, feel like you might be close to an airport right now. <laughs> there's some planes coming around. If there's a lot, we might need you to move inside or something, but right now we're okay. Yeah, we're in the, in the final approach for the local airfield here. Okay, well, that <laughs> would be it. Okay, because <laughs> there's, we, your, your, your microphone's really good. It's picking them up, but, uh. If it gets crazy, we might need to shift location, but um, so far, so good. I'll let you know. 
Um, the next question, what, one of the biggest ones is um, obviously everyone's aware of what's going on within the U.S. right now and in worldwide, but obviously originated within the U.S. in terms of um, what happened with George Floyd and then, uh, uh, you know, after that in terms of the fallout, the civil rights movement going on, Black Lives Matter and whatnot. And uh, we got some questions about that. I'm going to let these gentlemen um, pick up on that and, uh, and maybe take it off from there. Ryan LS, who, who would like to go first? Go to Ryan. Okay, so uh, Larry, I, I think you know you and I had talked a bit at length uh, about you know, where the USAPL is, uh, things that we've that kind of made us who we are, and the kind of the criteria that we've gone through in choosing you know from our executive team through um, how that business works. So if you could share some of that, I think it'd be it'd be quite insightful. Uh, me having been with us for about thirty years. Uh, I've seen, you know, a lot of this, but to hear from you was, was, was different. So I think that'd be great if you shared some of that insight. Sure. Um, our internal perspective and, and I started in the 1980s as a state chair and, and I was recruited directly by brother Bennett to be that state chair. And, and his perspective was, um, our business is powerlifting and, and, anybody can walk on the platform who basically meets a criteria and to get a fair shake here. Um, but even more than that, um, a number of us young men at the time, not so young now, but young men at the time were mentored in, in sort of the tradition that everybody gets a fair shake and, and that we look at people in terms of their, their interests and their values and their capabilities. And we mentor them into positions of leadership and, and when we were talking, Ryan, um, I said that if you look at our executive committee, um, it's, it's sort of a picture of diversity, and that's by design. That's, that's not accidental, um, because our perspective over decades has been to look out there and, and to find people who are dedicated to the mission and, and to bring them on and to give them skills and to have them assume positions of leadership within the organization, full stop. Um, and, and if they're, they have that commitment, other variables don't matter. Um, so um, that has always been our perspective. And, and we were asked and we discussed some um, if we have new initiatives. And, and for us, they're really the old initiatives, the old initiatives of, of looking for people who are dedicated um, looking for people who are representative of the lifters that we want to recruit um, wherever they may be, um, whether it be in the city or out in the country or um, whatever their background is to, to appeal to everybody. And so in terms of diversity, that's, that's always been our ethic. And, and I, I think it shows um, in terms of the people that are leading the organization now. Um, Someone um, made a funny comment to me once and they said, we need to recruit people of color for the executive committee. And I said, you need to turn around and look behind me here um, because this is sort of a picture of America here. Um, additionally, um, we have four military veterans and we have two sworn officers and we have women and um, that, is, that is our executive, that is our leadership. So 
I, I don't recall if if you uh, maybe you recall more of the things we talked about, but that's that's really always been where we've been coming from. Um, the other thing that that I would say is that one of the things that Brother Bennett was very clear about early on is that we're in the business of of healing our sport, and to do that, uh, we have to have an open hand to everybody and. Our, our drug-free period when I started was one year, and his objective at that point was to allow people the opportunity to clean up and to come join us. Um, and it's still our, it's still our ethic, although um, from a drug testing perspective, we follow the water rules at this point. Um, but that was, that was our initiation. We wanted people to have the opportunity to come here. Um, Go ahead. And how, how does our executive board compare to like our counterparts, um, you know, and, and, and similarly, like, you know, with USA Weightlifting and such, I mean, is it very similar where everyone has a, a uh, essentially a collage of the people that they represent or, or is, that, is that different uh, amongst our, our panel? You know, our, our executive is very different than most everybody else's. And, to embed it in a little bit of history. We've talked over the years and we started um, in terms of our bylaws, looking toward the USOC in the late 1990s. Um, and, and it's been an approach avoidance problem for us because with the USOC comes a whole lot of things that, that are, are not consistent with our ethic. And the constituency of the board is one. Um, if you look at, at boards in Olympic sports, um, to be blunt, there are a lot of rich old white guys. And, and they're not constituent boards. Ours is a constituent board that is, is really constituted of, of us, all of us. Um, people who compete and people who coach and people who are referees and people who, who um, are other officials for us. Um, we are our own board. And if we were to join the USOC, we couldn't be that. Um, we would look to outside boards um, recruited for the value they bring to the board, connections and money and um, those kinds of things. And at the end of the day, we don't want that. We would rather represent ourselves um, than tend to make that transition. Larry, so, Larry can, I, can I get you, can I stop before I was like, can I get you to maybe go inside? Just the, the planes are starting to become a yep. stitch uh, noisy in the background. Moving around here. No worries. <laughs> there we go. So, so to, to, I guess, to put a cap on that, we're very different than other boards. Um, we, are, we are constituted of our own rank and file. Um, and people who People ask me sometimes, how do you get to be on the executive committee of USA Powerlifting? And, and the way you do is um, you show an interest and you be involved in the organization. And it usually takes a while and you have to be active at, at different levels. You have to, uh, every one of us has been competitors. Um, you have to have probably been a competitor, not always, but you probably should have. Um, it helps to coach, it helps to be active administratively as a state chair or, or something else. Um, 
someone just can't come in basically and run for executive and get it. They, they have to be us. So. LS, do you have anything? Oh man, I'm, just, I'm, I'm listening. Like a lot of this is, you know, I'm just learning like the people that are going to be listening. The, the, some of the questions I got, um, and about, you, you know, possibly being vocal on certain matters, um, regarding this in terms of like, there's like a people feel there's a civil rights movement that maybe they they have expectations on the Federation to be vocalized. How do you feel in terms of that in, in, in a nutshell? Well, I have mixed feelings, obviously. Um, and as, as I said, I think in my newsletter, the, the issues with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and on and on it goes, those are tragedies. Um, there's no denying that. Um, but at the same time, um, one of the issues and in, in one of the questions we're gonna address is sort of what is it like in the life of the president um, I have very strong feelings about a number of things, but the, the thing I have to keep in mind is that I'm the president of everybody, and there are wide the different opinions in USA Powerlifting, and, and for every position on one side of an issue, the opposite position is clearly there. So we often walk a fine line um, in terms of trying to be approachable by most people. Um, that being said, um, one of the things that we try not to do, um, and it's, it's perhaps, well, I guess history will judge us, but um, we try not to be a political organization because it's easy to be drawn into things which at the time seem right and history judges as the wrong thing. Um, so we're in the business of powerlifting in as much as we confine ourselves to the business of powerlifting, um, all of our members can come and, and feel comfortable with us. By the same token, um, we instituted a code of conduct and it says that um, you will essentially treat each other nicely. And if you can't do that, then you have to go somewhere else. Um, and, and so um, we haven't, continued to make statements about that. And um, Ryan and I have talked a little bit about um, sort of what my background is. And I have some strong feelings about some civil rights related equality issues um, that are, are not widely known publicly and not being championed at the moment. Um, but it's not my place to make this a bully pulpit for those. Um, so our, our perspective, again, then, is we, we have always tried to do the right thing. Um, we've always tried to pick the right people and give everyone a fair shake and an equal shot. And at the end of the day, if we haven't done that, um, we're certainly open to correction. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, the platform decides. It's kind of like you're trying to toe the line of being supportive but not be actively a political active actively in that field. So it's a, it's a bit of a balance there. Is this also kind of something like a question that Ryan Stills had asked before? Um, and when you say Ryan, sometimes I think sometimes the listeners might be thinking <laughs> you're talking about me still, but um, it, it, is it also on par with other federations and other sports as well? Um, is it kind of like a following suit of what, what they're doing? Have, have you seen what some of the other organizations, maybe other IOC organizations are doing in terms of that? 
particularly in the U.S.? Well, it it seems, and and maybe this is just my jaded opinion, um, that they're running around trying to make up for not having done what they should have done to begin with, um, which is assure that they had adequate representation and equality across the board and um, adequate participation. Um, and as, as Ryan Stills asked, does our board look different than other people's? Yes. Um, does our coaching staff look different than other people's? It does. Um, does our referee corps look different? Yeah, it does. It, it's representative of who we are out there. Um, and so in, in terms of, of my peers, I'm probably going to get a lot of phone calls about this later, um, but in terms of my peers, I, I think in some ways, had they done the right thing to begin with, um, had they mentored the right people and, and recruited people and allowed them to advance, they wouldn't be having to do the things they're doing now to look like they're doing the right thing. I think there's a social media term for that where it's escaping me where you you put up a post and do things like that but there's a whole lot more to action in the background um you know where reality you're just trying to act like you're making movements by making posts and whatnot but in the background of some of these corporations um it doesn't look diverse it doesn't look like there is you know equal opportunity etc but um yeah obviously what's going on in the background but that's that's why it's important for you to be on these podcasts because some people don't know uh, what might be actually going on in the background, what the executive actually looks like, um, what the coaching staff might look like, and what people in positions like that might actually look like and how that might be made up. Um, how about you gentlemen, though? Uh, obviously, you, you probably got some questions. Do you have any LS? No, nah, man. This, this is listen time for me. Listen time? Okay. Uh, I mean, let me take a look here. We have any. Ryan, did you have any more? I know you had a conversation with Larry. Yeah, I think around this, a lot of a lot of what led to you know our conversation and led to us being on today was the fact that a lot of um, when you look at our board, and you look at like a Johnny Graham who's been our VP for how many years has been Johnny been the VP, Larry? Uh, Johnny and I actually came in together as a team, and and so he's been the vice president as long as I've been the president. Um, I I think we came in together, and I think we'll go out together probably. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, sounds like a movie ad right there. <laughs> I mean, that relationship and the conversation, you know, and some of the things that you're saying are pretty, they're pretty, pretty direct, pretty blunt, um, which is the conversation that you and I had, which I thought was valuable for people to hear also. Um, because, you know, a lot of you are, as we've discussed uh, between ourselves, Larry, was, you know, you are the guy that lives in Alaska. You know, yep. and and really is not, you know, we don't see you around as often. Um, so being able to have discussions like this, I feel are valuable for, and, and I'm not set up as a pro or a con, right? It's just a matter of information is information. I feel that's always valuable. Um, and so when you're able to say the things that you, like you just stated about, you know, where we are, what we've done, who we are and how we're going forward. I think those are things that people need to hear um, and it's important. And, and so, so yeah, so I think that that's, I do appreciate the fact that you say that no matter how it's taken, um, being able to say those things and get it out there so that people have at least your words to, to make, a, a, make an assessment uh, of their own. 
And we should assume, so listeners, well, Johnny Graham is a black man. That's why you had, you had mentioned that. Um, Correct. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I know that, but maybe some people don't just in case they're listening. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is important that some people know that there is, you know, people of color in positions and higher ups in, within the USAPL. And obviously I've seen at the world stage in terms of the coaching staff, et cetera. So um, yeah, I mean, actions speak more than a social media post to look good when on the inside, people might not know the truth, what it looks like. Um, I mean, people know that's the problem with social media in general, right? It's a little snapshot, but doesn't tell the whole truth. So uh, thanks for coming on anyways, to discuss it. Um, is there anything else in terms of, of this topic, gentlemen? I, I wanted to mention one other thing. And historically, Ryan mentioned basically that I'm in Alaska and you don't see me as much. And, and historically, the, the office of the president hasn't been the public face of USA Powerlifting. It's been the office of the vice president. Um, and, and that was true when I was the vice president. I traveled to all the meets and, and, and really spent the time meeting people. The office of the president really is more, unfortunately, political and legal and organizational. Um, and for better or worse, people tend to see Johnny more than they see me. Um, we designate him to travel. You get the fun stuff, huh? <laughs> yeah. Fun never I, stops. Fun never stops. I, uh, yeah, I can second that because I remember the first world championships that I commentated at was held in the U.S. 20, 2016. And uh, Johnny Graham actually was meet director as well. And I met Johnny Graham down there and, uh, and he was all hands on deck. You know, obviously, I think he was the meet director. Am I not right with that yes. one? So, yeah, it's a little different when you meet the director. You got to do a whole heck of a lot every single day. Wake up early, go to bed late. But uh, he's even driving people to and fro the airport. I mean, you got to do what you got to do when you're the meet director. So things get a little crazy. But um, yeah. And um, all right. So if everyone, before we move on, we can always come back, gentlemen. But we do have some other questions we want to get to as well. If we want to double back, um, if anything comes to you. But a couple questions here. The Arnold Classic story with the, the records. Obviously... <laughs> Uh, this this had some people a little stagger back. We didn't have a lot of big competitions in 2020. One of them we did have was the Arnold Classic. Saw what we thought were world records fall. A lot of people got excited and um, then got the news later on that these world records would not stand. This story's been told, but perhaps we could we could talk about it a little bit now again. Sure. To, to look at it historically, um, when we started the Arnold all those years ago, um, we always anticipated it being sort of a capstone pro kind of meet for the IPF. And, and it always was um, until to 2019 when it was, there were no IPF meets there. Um, but up until that time, um, it was an IPF meet sanctioned through the NAPF um, with IPF referees and third-party drug testing and all of the things that make an IPF meet an IPF meet. Um, the IPF president um, previously came and um, President Paraj has been. Um, the whole NAPF executive goes. Um, and so that's the sort of the context we were in. In 2019, um, we received a cease and desist. If you don't stop drug testing the way you are, um, you can't have any international lifters come to the USA. 
And in 2019, that's why it were, there were no IPF meets there. Um, but we reached a resolution around those issues um, and proceeded along in the way that we always have, um, discussed it among the NAPF executive, um, discussed it in the IPF executive in Dubai, um, and proceeded along our way. Um, held the meet, um, same usual things. And one of the expenses is paying for referees to come from other countries because you have to constitute a mix of referees rather than from one country. Um, tested um, by PwC, a German firm. Um, all the drug tests done in the, the, the WADA lab in Salt Lake City. Um, so we believe we are doing the right thing. Um, and um, we received several criticisms from the IPF and um, not initially involved in the discussions at the executive level to deny the athletes world records based on the fact that we never sought an IPF sanction. Um, and what we did was no different than what we ever did. Um, I would point something out to you. Um, one, there is no form or procedure for requesting an IPF sanction for anything but world championships. And two, there is no cost for an IPF sanction if it's not a world championship. So in our mind, we talk about it, we notify them, we're good to go because there's nothing else to do, right? Um, so we did all those things. Um, all of us were present at the NAPF executive level. Um, we met all the criteria. Um, we received criticisms on two things. One was Gino, um, and there's longstanding enmity uh, between Gino and some IPF officials, um, and the fact that it was never in the IPF calendar. Um, so therefore, it couldn't have been sanctioned. It was, in fact, in the NAPF calendar. Um, and I would point out, we never once requested it to be in the IPF calendar. That was their business. Um, so for us, nothing had changed. Retroactively, however, um, what we believed was an IPF-sanctioned meet was no longer an IPF-sanctioned meet after the fact, and therefore the records were not allowed. Um, and um, our position was, after scouring the IPF Constitution, there's criteria in the IPF Constitution for failing to seek an IPF sanction. It's, it's no consequences to the lifters, and it's a fine of 200 euros. We said, okay, so fine us, um, and we won't do that again. Um, but it seems to me, um, and I'll no doubt later be sanctioned for this, um, that the IPF is proving a point. Um, that essentially they're in control of that. Um, so will the Arnold be IPF sanctioned and will there be world records in the future? I don't know. Um, what we did, um, and it's no adequate compensation probably, but those nine lifters who set world records, um, we provided them some financial compensation because that was the best we could do in the situation. The other thing I will tell you is that um, we filed a complaint with the Court of Justice of the IPF, denied. Um, we will appeal it to the Court of Appeal of the IPF, and we will take it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport um, because we believe we're right and we believe the lifters deserve more. Okay. I think this kind of somewhat carries off into another question about 
um, I think we had touched upon, we got it from one of the other uh, questions that came in about the water labs okay. and the stance on that, uh, the USCPL in using water accredited labs. Well, here's a, one of the problems of being old is that for all the history there is, you were present for most of it. Um, but um, our position has always been that there's a, a certain amount of drug testing that's required if you want to keep the platform clean. And, and so when we look out there, um, our best guess is that an unpredictable 10% um, is, is useful. It, it doesn't cover everybody, but it, it provides a sufficient enough deterrent um, and adequate catching um, that it, it tends to deter people from coming to USA Powerlifting who are using things that are not allowed. Um, and so we don't believe that it's possible to do it with less than that. That's based on, well, we're, we're upwards of 50,000 tests over the years. Um, and more than a million lifter appearances. We believe that's what's necessary. Um, in order to have that be possible, um, and the IPF mandated that um, that we go to all WADA testing, the cost for that would have been two million, uh, four million dollars a year. Um, so there's that I would point out is just about three times our annual budget. Um, so when faced with the choice of not being a drug-free organization and not being able to do an adequate job um, versus continuing to test in a non-WADA lab at the local level. We chose the, the non-WADA lab at the local level. Um, and, and let me just say, and, and we've gone back and forth about this over the years, um, we just don't go down to the corner to Joe's lab. Um, we, we use Redwood Toxicology for our non-WADA test. It's an accredited forensic lab. The director of that lab was a director of the Moscow IOC lab who defected because of what they were doing um, and who is a, a world recognized expert in um, sort of advancing steroid technology. So we're, we're not looking at hackers out here. Um, we use a legitimate lab with legitimate procedures that are consistent with WADA. Um, and that allows us to do what we believe is an adequate amount of testing, about 2,600 tests last year. Um, I would contrast that with the IPF's testing, which was about 400 last year. Um, and what I can say is that we do more testing than all of the other nations in the world in the IPF together, because um, we believe it's important. So the sticking point is really just the accreditation of the labs then, I guess. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a funny thing. It's an interesting political thing. Um, to be an accredited WADA lab, um, there's nothing required beyond the procedures that our, our private lab uses. What is required is, is annual um, visits for accreditation and paying 10 years in advance of the accreditation fees. Costs millions of dollars to be a WADA lab. You have to pay it up front. 
And um, that would be why the fees then obviously get carried over to use the lab and they're so much more expensive for you to use them then. Yes. Gotcha. The, equi the equipment they use is no different. Um, the overhead is much higher. Hmm. And, and the fallout of this in terms of not using accredited water labs, is there more fallout with the IPF because of that? Or is it things going to stay the same as they are? Or that, That's likely to be decided in court at some juncture. But um, here's our perspective. Our perspective is that what we do locally, um, and, and when you think about our constituency, last year we had 22,000 members. 400 of those people made 600 international appearances, leaving 21,600 people who will never go to the IPF, um, or at least in any given year, don't go to the IPF. Um, so our perspective is, first, that they deserve to have a clean platform as well, and that um, our administering our drug testing program at the local level has no impact on the IPF. Um, at the end of the day, it's probably better for them. Um, when you think about countries that have no drug testing, basically, um, or who have um, suspect drug testing, trying to be as kind as I can here, um, the, the problem rolls up to the IPF level because they appear at the IPF and get caught, making the IPF look like a dirty sport. Um, and subjecting those countries to multiple kinds of sanctions. Suspension as a nation, big fines, largest fine in the IPF has been 50,000 euros um, to a country with repeated failures. Um, so there are consequences to um, not trying to address our problem locally and bringing it international. Um, we believe it's an advantage. It's an advantage to us and to our athletes, but it's an advantage to them. Um, as they consider IOC recognition, um, if the IPF um, came forward with 25% failures every year, um, there is not the remotest possibility they would ever be considered. Not sure. uh, I think it's also interesting. Yeah, I think it's also interesting when you talk about uh, how many people, because I think that the the voice of USA powerlifting is predominantly in the elite athletes, correct? And yep. so you get a lot of the feel that, you know, this relation with the IPF and what it looks like and the future of it. Um, but in essence, to your point, you have 21,000 and change that are never going, well, I don't want to say never, but you've got, you've got 95% of the Federation is never going to do an international meet, is never going to be, you know, uh, likely uh, you know, on the platform. Uh, at, at an international meet. So you're really looking at, you know, who is, who is our actual consumer, right? From a business yes. standpoint, it would be, who is your consumer? And your consumer yep. is not the elite athlete. Uh, they're they're a, a byproduct of having a good basis. Um, and this was actually something that opened my eyes because I've, I've been lucky enough to be able to be on some of those teams and be part of those groups over decades. So from my perspective, I'm looking at it and thinking, wow, this is a, this is a big deal if something happens and the, and the IPF is mad at us. Uh, and it took, it took other lifters that I respect that you know, I work with uh, to be able to tell me, you know, they're like, yeah, we're mad at this for you also. And that's when it kind of resonated. I'm like, oh, this doesn't impact you 
and the things that we're doing to do this is really to do it for a small minority of people that are, are really going to be impacted. So I think that's an interesting point that you brought up because I don't think a lot of people look at it that way because a lot of the voices that you hear uh, when talking about this are going to be the people that are being followed on your social media. And, you know, those are going to be a lot of the, the topper echelon athletes. Yes. And, you know, from a, from a business standpoint, our elite athlete program basically costs us a lot of money. Um, and obviously we exist to do that too, but, but most of the athletes don't know, don't care. Um, what they want are meets that are accessible to them that are well organized, um, where drug testing exists and refereeing is consistent and, and they can go and have a good time with their friends and, and do well at whatever level they are. Um, if, and, and just to speak for myself, um, some of the most meaningful competitions for me were when I got started and was competing um, here in Anchorage at the University of Alaska Fall Classic. Um, and the two or three of us, 165s, it went head to head for a couple of years in a row. Um, being the guy who came out on top was worth considerable bragging rights. And, and, and maybe maybe as valuable to me, you know, over my life as, as having won a world championship. Um, that's, that's what, what our lifters are about all that 95% you mentioned. They just want to go and compete. Unless you got any questions about that uh, yourself in terms of the water lab or drug testing or anything. I know you've made a, numerous world teams and been subject to numerous drug tests as well. I mean, I feel like every, I almost feel like every couple months I'm getting a drug test. So I am very, uh, very well versed in drug, drug testing world here lately. Um, I think that's been, uh, at least for me, just kind of seeing how the, I guess from starting in 2013 to present day, just kind of seeing over, uh, you know, a seven, eight year, you know, span of just seeing how, how, how more expensive the drug testing's become. Um, you know, I guess it used to be just, you know, you just had to make sure you had a big enough, you know, enough sample to fill and that was it. And now it's consistency and it's, you know what I mean? It's, I, um, I consider myself a very hydrated individual and, and even that one enough, like, okay, well, now you're, you're, you're too hydrated. Like, wait, what? So it's, 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 it's far more, at least for me, I mean, it's, it, it just seems like it's, 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 it's far more comforting now seeing how, you know, I don't mind getting drug tested. I don't mind there being a ton of, of drug testing going on because I mean, there's, there's one thing to feel like you're going against the best or you're one of the best, of the best, but I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's always a little bit more to add to the bragging rights when you know that, Hey, you know what, you know, I we did it clean, you know? Um, and if, you know, the outside chance that, that, that there is an opportunity to, to, to take it to the highest level, you know what I mean? Like you want to go to the highest level in the best, you know, best, best position possible. And if, if that drug test is one of the leading ways for, you know, again, for, for me, I just, I, I choose to compete drug free and I would like to think that the, my competition does the same, you know, and if the, at the very least I have to go and get drug tested, that's cool. Um, and to see how much more sophisticated it's become over the years. I mean, it, it, it's, for me, it's comforting, man. I don't mind, you know, I don't mind getting that random drug test, you know, in the middle of the day, like, wait, what are you doing at my house? I don't even know who you are. 
And then, you know, they, and then you see that pink sheet. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, I know what this is. Um, so, yeah, it's – as an athlete that, that's been on pretty much a world team every year since I've, you know, I've, I've done this, man, I, I, I'm, I'm as forward as, as forward can be. Um, but I also know that, you know, those of the numbers that, that don't experience that, they just see from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, well, where is this money going? Why are we spending this money? You know what I mean? So for them to even to hear, you know, this particular portion as of, you know, where and why and, and what, I mean, this is, this is huge for the, you know, for the layman that, that really doesn't know what goes on behind the scenes. So yeah, man, good book drug test for I think the, the other piece, the other piece that's, that's fun is when you get tested uh, during your workout in front of everybody. Like, I mean, you know, when everyone sees the, the person come in and they're like, I'm looking for Ryan. Like, oh, he's over there squatting right now. And I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? And they're like, good. Hopefully you're hydrated. You know, and you step off of what you're doing and go because that's in your, you know, that's your available time. But I think for those that are around, like, oh, this is real. This really happens. You know, <laughs> you, know you have a, a, a gym full of people who just saw them take you off into the, you know, into the, the bathroom and, and, you know, you're signing your papers and doing your things like that. He was just working out. They just grabbed him on a random Sunday morning and uh, he got tested. And I think that's, that's one of the, the best things we can do is, you know, with our random testing on our teams uh, to Ellis's point, you know, they show up at your door. You're like, I don't know who you are until they flash that badge. <laughs> you're like, Oh yeah, I know who this cat is. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, having those are good for the sport I feel. And for, you know, for the transparency, of knowing that it's not this, um, it's not this uh, backstreets type of, you know, hey, by the way, I'm going to come by and I'm going to test you on this day. And oh, okay, cool. Now that I know that I can do, it's not that. It's really the knocking your door. You're ready right now. And if you're not, there's consequences. I've heard stories without mentioning names, testing somebody, turning around, coming back, testing them a week and a half later because they knew you're going to think, oh, I got tested. I won't get tested again, at least for a little bit. And that's when they could get you if they double back. You know, they're not dumb. In terms of it being a compliment, I know you mean where if you get tested in front of everybody, like you see the performance I put on, you see what I'm doing, people would have to assume I must be on something. The worst would be if you were to ask them, do you want to test me? And they're like, nah, you're okay. Come on. <laughs> we know you're not. We know you're not. <laughs> are you kidding me? Test you? You know how much money these tests are? I'm going to waste that? Come on, man. We'll keep this for somebody's going places, but um, <laughs> is that just me, by the way? Okay. Um, one of the one of the funniest things that I I have in my album of memories is when I won the Master Worlds in two thousand. I was standing there on the top of the podium, and there's the guy from Kazakhstan and the guy from Russia on each side of me, uh. and one one other guy in the picture, and everyone said, "Like, who is that guy?" That's the doping marshal because he followed me everywhere right up onto the podium too. Yeah. Onto the podium? <laughs> yep. <laughs> what do you think you were going to do up there, man? You're secluded on a podium. Like, that, that dude, that is a – he took his job serious. Very serious. He, uh, honestly, no joke. I think, I, honestly, I think he's trying to squeeze in on your picture, man, because I've never seen someone get on the podium <laughs> with you, accept the award, and give a speech. Yep. <laughs> it was, he thanked people. <laughs> it was a funny thing, but but it happened. So I have the picture. Wow, wow that's tight protocol. For anyone who's <laughs> questioning how tight the protocol is, there you go. Um, one question that came in, and it's almost, I know this has been talked before, 
And um, I don't know how much we're going to dive into this, but several people have sent it. And um, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't bring it up. Uh, but the, the stance on uh, transgender athletes, whatever we could touch up on that, I know some things might be in motion. So I'll leave it. Okay. Um, well, in a lot of ways, our, our position on transgender participation hasn't changed. It's published on our website. Um, and I know there are clearly diverging opinions on it. Um, but we, we um, in looking at the issue, what, what we are about basically is fair competition. And um, so we wanted to do the best job that we could do um, in terms of assessing that. Um, what there isn't, and, and one of the criticisms we receive um, from people who think that um, transitioning however you'd like to is, is an acceptable alternative, um, what there isn't is large-scale randomized kind of studies on transgender powerlifters. There aren't any. Um, there's some anecdotal work in terms of runners um, there are analog studies, some recently published, um, looking at strength levels in male to female and, and female to male um, with testosterone supplementation, sort of profiling strength over time, um, recently published work. Um, but there really is no good data. And, and there's no, there previously was no answer to um, and here's a fundamental question. Is there really a difference between men and women in strength? And no one really ever answered that question. And, and so us being a sort of a unique sport and probably um, maybe other than strongman, we're really sort of at the end of pure strength sports. Um, weightlifting involves something that a lot of us don't have, which is coordination and speed. Um, so we're looking at strength basically. And so we wanted to answer the question, are, are men and women really different? Because if they really aren't different, it doesn't make any difference, right? You can go wherever you want to go and it's not going to impact the fairness of competition. Um, so we looked at essentially the whole IPF database. And, and what we found was that there really are significant differences in strength between men and women. And, and without going into it at any length, they're significant. Um, what we then did is look at um, all the best literature we could find, which talks about um, if you make a transition, how do you reduce that strength, whether it be androgen blockers or whatever it is that you do, um, and how much is that? Um, and it is, the short answer is it's nowhere near the difference between the strength levels of men and women. Um, our best conclusion at that point, and we've spoken about it both in our NGB meeting and publicly um, in, in other media outlets, is um, that we can't allow um, particularly male to female transitions to compete in a female division because it is an inherent unfairness. Um, and one of the things that I think is often overlooked is that um, women are a protected class. Um, and and if, if we allow what's essentially unfair treatment of them, 
then they have an argument that we are treating them unfairly. Um, so what we did basically was do our best. Um, that being said, um, and, and we've talked about this and um, having been called a bigot and a transphobe and having had my family threatened and, and what have you over this issue, um, that's, that's still not who USA Powerlifting is. We're not in the business of being phobic, um, being racist, being discriminatory. And if we essentially, um, as consistent with our code of conduct, um, it essentially says you'll be nice and you'll be courteous and you'll treat people well. Um, that's the essence. It's sort of the golden rule of powerlifting. Um, so keeping people out just to keep them out or um, for the presumed us not liking them or disagreeing with their politics. I have to tell you, we don't give a damn about politics. Um, any of those things, that's not what we're doing here. Um, we're just keeping the platform level. To that end, um, we really do believe that USA Powerlifting is a place where um, people should come and have a home and be comfortable. And um, so we did our best to reconcile that. And one of the things we did was reach out to the gay games. Um, we have a really pretty good relationship with the, with with them. And what um, are the gay games? Sorry, just in case people don't know uh, what the it, gay games are. The gay games are a multi-sport festival um, for um, for essentially. Um, well, it, it, I can't say gay and straight people and whatever. It's for everybody, but um, it's a supportive environment for gay and lesbian and transgender and non-binary people um, to go and compete in all kinds of sports. Powerlifting is only one. Um, and so we, we talked to them at, at a great length um, about what their perspective on it was. And, and interestingly, their position is um, that there's an inherent unfairness there too. And, and what they constituted is what they call an MX division um, they did a test of two years, and then they just extended it to next year as well. Um, the NMX division is is essentially a non-binary division or anybody else who wants to compete in there to be supportive or to compete with their friends or whatever it is they want to do. Um, that's one of the new divisions we are likely to launch this year. Um, and in talking to the folks who run the gay games, um, participation in that division would qualify a person for the gay games. Uh, um, we have other divisions that we're launching too, because again, we want to be inclusive rather than exclusive. And um, the rules of powerlifting, um, we follow IPF technical rules and rules of performance, um, essentially are restrictive to people who are disabled, have some kinds of disabilities. Um, but we think this is a pretty good sport for everybody. Um, and, and so we're launching also this year, if we, we can ever succeed in launching, um, this year, we're still in March competition wise. Um, but if we could ever launch again, uh, sort of on a larger scale, um, we're also going to uh, launch uh, an adaptive division, um, including, um, bench pressing, um, which will be not inconsistent, not entirely consistent, but not inconsistent with um, para benching, um, 
and other adaptations as well um, in terms of um, one example is um, we have lifters who are missing limbs who um, then need to use straps or other appliances to hold onto the bar. Um, we have lifters who um, are missing a leg and so IPF rules say both of your feet are on the floor, but what do you do if you don't have both feet? Um, then, you're, then you're sort of outside the rules in some ways. Um, so um, we're going to launch those divisions as well um, because we, we think this is a pretty good place for folks to come and compete and um, we think we have the infrastructure to provide them a viable competition venue. Coming back to your original question, um, that includes non-binary folks. While they may not qualify in the division that they necessarily want to be in, um, we want to offer them the opportunity to compete um, with USA Powerlifting. You know, it's, it's funny how, like, like you had mentioned earlier, you never know how history looks at us, right? When they look back. And I know like as white male, straight, like my, I'm talking about myself, you, I don't know necessarily what's the best I should be doing right now. What's the best way to be leaning. And it's kind of like you've been saying where, look at when certain things come up, when I look behind me and my team is, we have people of color and I could turn to the mass and be like, we have representation here. So if we're moving, we're moving together. Or for instance, in this situation, um, where the it's it's this we we weren't having these conversations back in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Now we are, and it's like I, I'm not necessarily sure. I gotta look into it. I don't want to make the wrong move because people judge you, and then you made the wrong move, and there it is for history. So it's kind of like you did there as well. Let me reach out to the the organizers of the gay games and people in that community, and what. What is everyone doing in this community? What's, what's the best way to go and start following suit? It's almost, if you're not in there, you don't, it, it's, you're not sure, right? So you've got to do some investigation and reach out to people in that community. And it's, it's, it's tough decisions because almost, no matter what, when you have this many people in the USAPL following, you are not going to please everybody. I don't have to tell you, I'm sure you know. <laughs> but um, it will be impossible. You will never do enough. But it's not, it's just you got to do the best you can. And the best I think you can do is reach out and have conversations and ask like you're doing. Because um, I've, I mean, I got no, I just responsible for myself. And that's the best thing I could do is have conversations with people in those communities and, and, get, and get opinion. And that's one of the beautiful things about these podcasts, sir. What, what are the unfortunate things that, that you guys ask sort of what my world is like? The office of the president is the, the place where people get told no. And, and so while I can empathize with people in their position, sometimes the answer is just no, you can't do that. Um, and so what else can we do? And, and as you said, this is a situation where um, we're not going to please everybody. I can tell you that um, sort of on a personal but official level, I, I have both sides of that issue represented with opinions coming to me and they're equally strong. Um, so um, in terms of ever making everyone happy, that's never going to happen. Um, we're just gonna try to do the best we can and include the most people we can and, um, and drive on. Yeah. Uh, did you fellas have any questions on this or, or do you wanna move on to the next one? 
Silence, fellas. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> I'm good. I think I think is. I know that there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of things that you're working through that you can't say uh, or can't state. So um, I think for the amount that you have actually given on there, I, I, I don't really have a follow up on there. A lot of things moving behind the scenes, and it's hard to tell where we'll be in a couple of years. Right. Yeah. No kidding. Look at 2020. Things <laughs> things change quickly. Things change quickly, my friends. Um, but uh, yeah, well, one of the first first ways of getting things to change is having conversations, right? And opening up to the public and, and getting feedback. So um, let's take, so team selection, obviously Raw Nationals is gone now. And that was, that's a big blow. Some people kind of seen it coming, but Raw Nationals is gone. And moving forward in terms of team selection for the 2020 one world championships let's assume there's going to be a 2021 world championships we got a lot of questions on a do is there a possibility you think of trying to squeeze in a 2021 raw nats before the world championships if they were to take place again in june like they usually do is that even something that's feasible at this point with the size and amount of organization with this much uncertainty still around or, and then based off of that, you use those world championships qualifiers. Some people have kicked around ideas, even on this podcast of, well, if they have the Arnold Classic, turn that into a USA Raw Nationals primetime and, um, and you have yourself your qualifying totals based off that. Um, I'm not sure of what ideas maybe even kicked around in terms of that, both moving the Raw Nationals for 2021 before Worlds and the world team selection even if the Raw Nationals doesn't get moved beforehand and Raw Worlds does still take place and you got to feel the team. I, now I realize not all this might be, this might still be in talks, but just some ideas or conversations you might've had. Well, we, we've talked about it at some length actually and come up with no great answers, I have to say. Um, but um, our initial thought was the people who qualified to go to the 2020 Worlds um, would get first right of refusal for 2021. Um, we've talked about, and, and uh, unfortunately, we, we, in a lot of ways, we follow the IPF schedule, which is going every which way. Um, and so the issue of what to do with raw masters um, is a puzzle in itself as Master Worlds is moving to the spring. Um, and so can we get a qualifier in? We don't know. Um, could we do it at the Arnold? We've talked about, um, we, we've always had the option to expand our Arnold experience to a week or 10 days. Um, the downside is obviously all the people aren't there. Um, but, but we have the venue if we should choose to exercise it. Um, and do we want to select the masters that way? Um, Really, uh, many of the people that go to Raw Nationals primetime are people that we invite to the Arnold anyway. Um, that's sort of the caliber of lifter that we want there anyway. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, one of our concerns, and we've been uh, talking with the Arnold, um, is, is what's going to happen with the Arnold this year. I mean, obviously, they would like it to occur just as it always has but our experience last March showed that that didn't happen. And, and so we don't know what it's going to look like next year either. Um, as as uh, Ryan Lapidat said, 
um, we ran the last big event in 2020, um, but we ran that event with limited spectators and, and a whole lot of production. Um, that, I mean, it was a good meet, obviously. It ran as well as we could have expected, and all of the expo stage events were all sardined into, the, into our ballroom, and um, we ran it, and it worked. Um, and it may be that again. I, I mean, I don't know if we know. So um, there are a lot of questions. Um, the, the thing that we are, are most set on so far is that if you were selected for the world team in 2020, you get first right of refusal in 2021. Um, because we don't know if there'll be another selection meet between now and then. Um, we don't have any way to know. I guess you would be still the reigning champion you haven't yep. been defeated anyway you're not knocked up no one took your crown off your head so it's kind of it's kind of still yours right in in a way yep. unless of course if the arnold classic rolls around for the second time then people start logging even bigger totals and people might want to raise their hand but it's like you, it's hard to put bank anything on arnold classic when that might be a pipe dream as well and yep. you could you could gas people up for a disappointment if you're if you start leaning towards that so um there is no easy answers i i got people asking about sheffield um you know was sheffield 2021 gonna happen it's like well in all honesty who knows what's going on with travel from people all over the world no less flying in you know these are these are not small events to put forth and then when you put tell meet organizers what kind of deposits they got to put down and the type of the type of work to put something together, the size of some of these competitions, especially a raw nationals is huge, humongous. And to do that on a whim where it's probably less than 50, 50, it's going to actually happen. It's a big ask. I'm not raising yep. my hand for that job. Right? Yep. I'm not, you, you could be taking a bath. So I knew it was going to be one of those questions where it's like, look at, we're looking at options, but we're early enough in a year that who knows what's going to happen. Godzilla could show up by November and I'm not even blinking. I'm not even blushing by this point. Of course. Yep. What took you so long? But uh, how about you fellas? You guys got any questions? Because you guys have been on a couple world teams, but this is probably somewhat what you've, you've anticipated as well. No firm answers on national team selection. Yeah, I think the, the, the selection process, that, you know, I think most of us are, are up in the air the same of you know what what makes sense and i think that everyone's on the same page of you want to be fair um but at the same time you know what does it look like if i don't have a chance to make a team or like ellis and i are both sitting on teams now that didn't compete you know so it's like we're we're, we're ready to go uh, but that's that's part of being a competitor uh, my question to you larry would be around the around the arnold is the cost higher when we don't have fans there um, because of what it takes to produce? Because uh, the production level is higher, but you don't have people. Is that, a, is that a, an extra cost to run it that way? Yes. Um, and, and what we get from the fans, obviously, the support of the fans, um, but we also, um, that's what sells our merchandise. And, and not necessarily only powerlifters, all the 400,000 people who walk by. Um, so that's, that's a place where we lose the most significant amount of money. Mm. Um, and usually the, the 
USAPL merchandise that we sell there is a difference between making money and breaking even or losing money and breaking even. So the short answer to that is we expect that, it, that we would lose money if the fans weren't there. And, and, what I was thinking. and because what well, some of the questions that came up as well, because there isn't a lot of competition um, in, in some States, there are other federations that are running competitions. What would, is there going to be sanctions against or, or suspensions against lifters who might participate in, in competitions from other federations or what would happen there? Well, we wouldn't suspend them because, you know, it, it's a free country and we believe people can go where they want to go and lift where they want to lift. Um, we like to think that we um, produce the best meats and that people will come back because we do a good job. Um, but we're not going to go out there looking for them and suspend them. Um, people have freedom of choice. We hope they choose us. Um, but if they don't choose us, um, we're not about the business of going out and punishing them for that. Gotcha. Uh, fellas, any questions in regards to that one? Nope, I'm good. I, well, I think we're we're getting on. Uh, one question that I, that came in and, and we somewhat discussed beforehand, but I'm kind of interested in terms of the role of the of the USAPL president. Some people may not know you actually kind of somewhat touched up on it. You it sounds like you got all the tough jobs and um, the <laughs> stressful ones that uh, might keep you up at night. But um, in brief. What, what are some of the things that USAPL president role would be taking on? To, to again, look at it historically, um, when the ADFPA started, it was all Brother Bennett um, working in his room at St. Stanislaus College, and he sent out the membership cards, and he typed up the meet results and um, went to every meet, and he did everything. Um, and, and as we've grown, that's not possible, obviously. And so we are fortunate in, in this day and age to um, have an executive, um, our executive, and that's another thing in terms of being on our executive that um, people are often shocked at when they get on. Um, this is a working executive. And so we talk almost every day. Um, and there are usually four or five email conversations going on. I, I offer that by way of explanation to say that Everything I do is well supported. These are an extremely competent, professional bunch of people. Um, in addition to that, <coughs> we have a, a staff that's very good. Um, Priscilla Ribic is our executive director and um, produces all of our national meets and manages projects and does a lot of the things that the president used to do. Um, Johnny Graham, as we mentioned earlier, in a lot of ways is the public face of USA powerlifting. And so, um, as the role of the president has changed as we have grown, um, the role of the president is largely political and policy making, um, dealing with legal issues, um, dealing with disciplinary issues, um, all of the things that are not very much fun, um, and sort of a on call 24 hours a day for emergency kind of things. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, setting the tone for the Federation. Um, obviously, I'm not the only one, but, but I've been here a long, long time, almost since the beginning. And one of the things that is, is 
embedded in the job of the president is to keep us on the course that Brother Bennett set for us um, almost 40 years ago now, um, which is um, to be still the, the American Drug-Free Powerlifting Association. The, the reasons that um, Brother Bennett and Nick Theodoro and Robert Crawford and um, Joe Hummel um, really, um, the reasons why they wanted to start a federation that was like this um, are still out there and still um, have the same importance that they did then. And so one of my jobs is to um, project things into the future and set our long-term direction. And a lot of times things that seem like a good idea today have implications that would be negative two years or three years or five or 10 down the road. And so um, in some ways I, I am the custodian of the crystal ball. Um, and that means telling people who, whose ideas they, they think are good are not really healthy for the long-term um, perspective and health of the organization. Um, so, so that's really what I do on a, on a kind of a day-to-day -day basis. In terms of, in all your years, both as a lifter and as the USC appeal president, and we've seen a massive upswing in terms of growth lately in powerlifting. What do you think are some of the biggest factors in this growth in the last few years? I mean, we've seen the women's division explode. Obviously the rock slash classic division is just blown up as well. Live stream, social media. Um, what do you think are some of these factors? Why? Well, uh, the single biggest external factor um, was uh, the growth of CrossFit, honestly. Um, and we have no formal relationship with them, but what they did was put weights in the hands of a lot of people, some of whom gravitate to us, um, I like to think, because they eventually get bored and want to do something different, but maybe not, who knows. Um, but there's just a lot of more people doing a lot more strength-related activities out there, and that's been a benefit to us. The internal factor is the initiation of the raw division. Um, and, you know, it, it, lifting raw has provided people the opportunity to participate first more cheaply. Um, one of the things I say in my coaching courses is an elite level athlete in gears equipment costs $2,000. Um, and that's a huge bite for somebody. But if you're competing at the local level, um, all you have to do to compete is have a single. Um, don't have to have a belt, don't have to have sleeves, don't have to have squat shoes. Um, you can bring your t-shirt from home long as it's moderately tasteful and powerlifting related. Um, and you can go out there and lift. And so what that has provided us is ease of entry like no time in our past. Um, so that's been a factor. Um, other factors are um, that historically we had very few meat directors. And so even up to the 2000s, we had 30 or 40 meat directors. And now we have 250 meat directors. Um, they don't all um, throw meats every year, but we have a really a cadre of very accomplished meat directors who um, put on good meat. And people like to go to good meets that are well organized and sort of run like clockwork. And um, when I started, and it, when I started, it was before the round system. 
Um, it was so long ago in the 70s. Um, but you'd go to the meet, you'd weigh in at seven o'clock in the morning. And if you were pu pulling your last deadlift at midnight, you were lucky. Um, so <laughs> God. you mean lucky because you could be pulling later? You could be pulling at six o'clock the next morning. <laughs> that's, that's, that's crazy. I just think, all right, you win. You got it. I'm, I'm hitting my opener. I'm going home. Yep. Yeah. The number of people who dropped out in the deadlift was high, but yeah, I bet. But but we have good meat directors who who run nice meats and have good equipment and um, put them in nice venues and and so people want to be a part of that and so that's been a factor. Um, there are just more meats and as as Ryan still said earlier, um, that that ninety five percent who never competes even nationally. Um, they just want to go to a nice meet close to home and and have a chance to compete and in most places they now have that so that I would say would be the third factor it's it's it must be a trip to think about the seventies when you think about your powerlifting experience fast forward to twenty twenty and we have live streams massive screens in the background with all the you know you got Gino on the platform. It's just a completely different scenario than, than the 70s with powerlifting. And you have people who, obviously, with social media, you have, I, I don't know how often, Larry, do you go on social media often and take a look at some of these guys and girls that we got? I do. Do you? Okay. okay. Well, if they're listening, you're like, oh, shit. But <laughs> the, the president's watching, ladies and gentlemen. But um, we have people who are like, like Russell Orhe who's world champion, several time USAPL champion. And my man's got million dollar body, million dollar smile, hell of a personality, charismatic individual, been on the podcast a million times, not a million times, but a few times. Yeah, great interview, cuts great sound bites and can just absolutely murder social media, has over a quarter of a million followers. I mean, this is 2020. It's almost inconceivable in the seventies when it was French sport. You tell your, I can't, look, at when I started in 2007, I was telling my parents and friends and they thought I was a bodybuilder. They see me with a tan and they're like, oh, you got a competition coming up. I'm like, oh man, I wouldn't even correct them because it's painful. And now fast forward to 2020, we're on ESPN. We're not us as in IPF necessarily, but powerlifting. And we have social media stars. We have, you know, there are some big people out there and people in the mainstream, even TV stars, movie stars talk about powerlifting. I listen to podcasts, Joe Rogan, et cetera. They talk about powerlifting. They'll even name drop some people we have. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it must be a hell of a trip for an individual like yourself to see this jump and from A to B. And you see the inner background workings of how we got there. Yep. It, it, it is. It's a great thing. And someone asked me once about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, if, if I had a goal for powerlifting, um, what would it be? And my answer was, I'd like to see a world where powerlifting provides an opportunity for people to make a living, where people can go out there and, and coach people and get sufficient exposure to endorse things and, and actually make money at this, not just spend $10,000 a year pursuing their hobby, but break even and make money and be recognized and and we're getting there um, we're getting there do, do you think one of the questions we got um 
Angelo Fortino sent it in, and we had a discussion on the podcast before. Could USAPL Raw Nats, which is a hell of a show, ever end up on ESPN, do you think? Um, I think it's possible. Um, it, I have friends in other federations, and, and they have wrestled with the issue of ESPN itself um, and Fox Sports and what have you, and there's a high entry cost to those. Um, but, um, but we do really well on, on live streaming. Um, the Arnold is the most live streamed event in the powerlifting world. Hmm. Um, just for interest, somewhat annoying to the IPF, but, um, it's the most watched powerlifting event in, in history, actually. Um, and that includes ESPN. So do I think we'll be on ESPN? Um, I'd say I'm 50-50 at this point. Um, we'd, we'd, have to, um, we'd have to generate the money to do it. Um, it's a huge amount of money, um, about a quarter million bucks up front. Um, and I guess we would have to analyze it and see if, if it, it made sense in terms of cost benefit. Um, one of, the, one of the, the good things about being a nonprofit is we don't have to make any money, but be nice if we didn't lose any. <laughs> yeah, well, it'd make you feel better about doing your job. Full disclosure, I'm on the IPF media team. I'm the commentator for the world's live stream. So it does hurt a little. It does hurt a little. <laughs> those stats. Thank you. <laughs> I, I should have put that in my introduction. I'm on the IPF live stream. But, uh, but anyways, it is what it is. But uh, yeah, I mean, and another thing that I, I noticed, talking about CrossFit bringing in lifters, and the, the introduction of the raw division as well as the classic division, I do think CrossFit helped bring in people. It put a lot of barbells in people's hands. I do think not having equipment to contend with in terms of you go to the gym, you squat, there's not that barrier of entry cost-wise and relatability. You know, if you're coming from CrossFit, mm -hmm. you're like, I don't want to master a bench shirt. I don't want to, you know, I just, I'm, I'm coming from a different sport like that. But also with the Olympic lifting, I don't know if you heard about this, Larry but some of your athletes are getting poached by Olympic lifting. I've had people who have said, I have been contacted by coaches and they're poaching power lifters, my friend. How do you feel about that? Because some of them are some of our bigger stars. They've come on here and mentioned. I'm, I'm actually okay with it. And are you? That, <laughs> wow. that's, that's, that's one of the areas where we have a good relationship with USA weightlifting. There are a lot of areas we have a good relationship with them on. Um, but that's one of them. And, and when Phil and I talked about those, those issues and, and how to bring lifters more exposure, um, that's an area. Um, if, if someone has the opportunity to go to weightlifting, um, become a supported athlete, have the opportunity to compete internationally in weightlifting, I'm all for it. And I would, I would say that um, one of the lifters I personally coach actually is one of those lifters. Who's that? Um, Tiffany Wollers. Oh, okay. Um, won the American Open this year in Columbus and competed in South America and the Pan Americans. Um, oh, wow. So, so I'm for it. I mean, it just provides more opportunities. And one of the things about weightlifting is your career is short compared to ours. Um, we so actually we'll see you again. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you again. And we actually studied it and. 
Um, the average age of our, our open equip team a few years ago was 38. Um, so you can do this a long, long time, long after you're over the hill weightlifting. You know, gotta tell us, eh, fellas? Indeed. <laughs> this is this is that demographic, my friend. Okay, so I'm okay if they poach some of our lifters, but they better stay away from Russell. Because <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll get some feelings right there. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be upset. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it, it's. I think if I'm thinking back though, when I look at the two sports, and I can see where they might poach because you might if you get an individual young enough. Someone that jumps up in my mind, and you might have. I don't know if you met him or not is uh, Mark Henry, who might be the one individual who, he was in the American Drug Free at the time, this is 90s, this is like 95-ish. And then, at the, and then I don't, I think he went to the World Drug Free in terms of international, it wasn't IPF, yes. right? Yeah. And then look at me with this powerlifting knowledge, fellas. And then he also in 92 and 96 went to the Olympics, made top 10 in Olympic lifting, and also, incidentally, later on, won the Arnold Classic for Strongman in the inaugural Arnold Classic event. And when he, he got poached, started doing Olympic lifting, I think 18 months, because he is the world's greatest powerlifter. I mean, the guy's deadlift, I think his deadlift record, drug tested on a stiff bar, over 900 pounds, lasted for decades. I'm pretty sure. Classic, raw, not equipped. And then within 18 months was on his way to the Olympics. The guy's just a phenomenal talent. I don't know if we'll ever see another talent like that. Did you meet Mark Henry? And would you say, who, is, who do you think is the most talented lifter you've come across in all your years? I, I don't think, I, first, the answer to the first question, yes, I knew Mark Henry. I, I was the head referee on his first American record in Austin, oh. Texas in 1990. Um, and I've known him since he was a kid, um, just as a sort of an aside in terms of athletic ability. Um, he, he was really kind of a big shy kid then. And, and so rather than hanging around with everybody, he was off in the back dunking the basketball um, during warmups. Um, he, he, weighed, he weighed about 380 then. Holy Jesus! Um, what? But, but yeah, I've known him a long time and um, he, he's clearly one in a million. Um, in terms of other lifters um, that, that I hold in equally high regard, David Ricks is one. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's ageless. Um, obviously, um, he, he uh, beat me in my very first nationals and and he still is and could beat me today, obviously. Um, he's been out there a long, long time and, and he's good as he ever was. Um, Priscilla Ribic is one. She was a generation ahead of her time. Um, she had the highest Wilkes in the IPF. It stood for eight years. Um, and so she's obviously one. Um, and another one that's not as widely known um, Harriet Hall. Um, I also coached her in Alaska here. Um, when she was 56 years old, she posted the highest total in women's nationals um, among all lifters. Um, she competed in the World Games in Japan um, as a Master II lifter. Um, so um, I've had the, the good fortune to be associated with 
um, some really unbelievably, unbelievably talented athletes. And, and just off the top of my head, those are four who stand out for me. Um, yeah. They're obviously not the only ones, but, um, but they are um, set high water marks, I think, that will never be broken in some ways. When I think of people like Mark Henry is the first one off the top of my head. How about you fellas in terms of iconic lifters that made an impact for you? I think like for sure, no doubt, Ray Williams is Ray Williams. And when Ray Williams is on, it's you, you, everyone in the house can feel that energy. Uh, commentating at the world championships. Holy moly. When that guy, I'm sure it's the same at the U S raw nationals. As a matter of fact, everybody will always remember when he squatted a thousand pounds. Uh, the first man officially to do so at classic raw division. But when he steps up, I mean, live for me, it's Ray when he hits, when he hits and he does his thing. And I will always remember, I mentioned on the podcast before, but in Belarus, Ray Williams stepped to the squat rack. And I said, we are witnessing the strongest man alive about to do his thing. And I heard myself say it and got, goosebumps because like holy moly this is nuts that what am i doing here eight feet away from the world's strongest man doing what he's doing it's just one a moment for me um so i'll always remember that in terms of moments but in terms of individuals that are iconic there's something about mark henry because he's done the trifecta and he was way before my time coming in and i'm probably never going to meet him so it makes him like that intangible rock star he's like the unicorn i'm never going to get a hold of now so it just makes him even bigger in my mind's eye right this what happens when you have icons and legends how about you ryan and ls who are some guys that you guys looked up to um that were icons to you that gave you hope and inspiration had some moments uh Go ahead, Ellis. You start off. Um, David Ricks. Um, My man. That's absolutely no secret. Um, yeah, man. Um, to be honest, like, yeah, it's. I mean, I, I could I could rattle off thousands of names, man. Because as soon as I became interested in, in in powerlifting and really wanted to make it a part of my life, um, first thing I did was just dig in the crates and uh, look up as many names. Um, learn as much about the history as possible. I mean, it's, it's pointless to do something, you know, that you, you know that you're going to care about and, and not know the history. Um, I feel like it's a big problem with, 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 with our sport is, you know, we're, we're really, what have you done for me lately types. Um, so definitely David Ricks. Uh, um, probably off, off bat, I would say David Ricks and Brad Gillingham. Those are my two that, that uh, they, they kind of set the bar for me in terms of just, you know, what I wanted to be in terms of just the the type of lifter um, that's not just a great lifter, but also an even better man. Um, so those those are the two that stick right out for me. My friend, can I say something? Um, as like uh, being able to be in that commentating seat at so many world championships, I got, I remember you coming into the IPF 2017 world championships in Belarus as a fourth alternate. A fourth alternate. You were the last alternate. You needed you need somebody to pull off the team. You needed to run through every single alternate, and then you made it on. And then when you made it on, you ended up winning the world championships, which is a phenomenal sports story in terms of throw your hat in the ring, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And then winning the world championship and me knowing what David Ricks means to you being on the platform, getting the gold medal, holding the American flag, 
with David Ricks on the platform with you and you were crying. I was like, oh my God, that's the Disney ending right there. For, for the guy who made the team as a fourth alternate and to make it, just make it onto the team and then you end up winning the world championships. Um, definitely something I'm never going to forget myself, dude. It's weird to be, a, I know, a part of someone else's history for inspirational moments, but it is what it is, my man. How about you, Ryan? Who's, who's somebody you look up to in a moment? I think the when I look at it, you know, I was lucky enough to I came up in uh, the Midwest. So Brad Gillingham was somebody I got to see and spend time with. And he was one of the most humble people you ever want to meet. You know, he, he would talk to you about whatever you want to talk about. He's a great guy. Uh, people that I remember watching uh, as a youngster coming up, Wade Hooper was one of those guys where Wade was just he was the man. Like if Wade was there, everyone's like, nice. What's the battle for second? And you could actually have. <laughs> you could have that argument for the weight class above him also. Um, so, so Wade was one of the Brian Siders, another guy that when we look at, you know, those heavyweights that did things that no one was doing, he came on the scene and you had, you had Brad Gillingham was the man and Brian came on really soft-spoken, uh, big kid, and just, just put up numbers that we hadn't seen before. But from a personal standpoint, uh, Tony Harris – is a personal wow. close friend of mine. But I remember the first time I had met Tony was I was a youngster. I had just come off of, I think maybe it was a year after I had won junior nationals, uh, which was a, a great one. I think I competed guys like uh, Nick Taluki and Char Gayhagen. And these may not me mean a lot right now, but I know Larry like knows a lot of these people, right? Oh, coach so, those guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I come off of, of winning junior nationals and, you know, I'm thinking I'm, I'm something, but then I get to open nationals and I realize I'm seated like sixth. Uh, and, and at this time, nationals only had maybe 12 people in your weight class. Uh, you had like one, flight, one flight of nationals. So I'm sitting there and I'm lucky to, you know, I'm thinking if I can make the podium, this would be great. And I'm looking across the room and there's, there's this guy sitting back there, his feet are up. He's got this wrap on him. He's, you know, and there's guys just listening to everything he says. And I'm looking at him, like, oh, I recognize him from the magazines. Oh, you know, man. I'm like, that's, that's Tony Harris. And so I look over, so I move my chair over there and I say, you know, hey, hey, you know, and even at this time, you know, because Tony is so much older than I am. Uh, I, I was like, you know, hey, hey, Mr. Harris, you know, I, I'm Ryan Sills. He goes, oh, yeah, bring your chair over here. Come on over here. Let's talk about some things. And so he's like, tell me all these stories and, you know, about, you know, he's working with, at the hotel and he lives on the island. And, and I never forgot that. And it meant a lot to me. And that kind of, that set me up for what it looks like, what good looks like to be a mentor to some of the younger people coming along. So I try to make sure that when I have those opportunities, I go back to that moment when he didn't have to do anything. He was the man, you know, he was, mm -hmm. he was going to win nationals. He's going to go to worlds. He's going to do all these things. People knew who he was, but he took the time out for some kid that was, you know, I wasn't even going to make the podium that day. But it wasn't about that for him. It was about, you know, spreading the sport, spreading the love and being a mentor. And I, I, I kept that with me. And we stayed in communication. And when I came back to lifting, uh, six years ago, I came back to the Federation. He was one of the first guys I hit up. And we've traveled now, luckily, all over the world together uh, and competed. And, um, you know, with social media, it keeps things close, too. So, uh, yeah, and those may be the last nice things I say publicly about Tony Harris is I want him to get a head full. Uh, thinking, thinking how special he is. So, <laughs> well, you, you're actually chasing his world record, are you not? <laughs> yeah, he, <laughs> yes, yes. Because I uh, remember if Dennis, if Dennis Cornelius doesn't turn forty uh, <laughs> sooner, you, man, you don't got a lot of. You better hurry up. 
Holy, I forgot about that. Yeah, Dennis is not a young man. Well, there's another guy that, I mean, kind of like Larry was saying, we peak later. You know, like, I don't have to tell you guys, you guys are still hitting PRs. But I remember at the World Championships in Sweden, um, you were chasing Tony's Tony's record there. And actually, Tony was helping you that day to break his record. Um, Quick question, though. You got, look, you're a charismatic dude. You hit the platform. You got your rituals. Where does your ritual come from? What is the ritual? First off, because is it a grenade? Is it what is that you're throwing out there? The boom and the hole. I, I didn't, I didn't know until I see it. I was like, oh my god, fell in love with this guy. <laughs> uh, so, so I used to be a big wrestling fan, pro wrestling. Okay, and uh, I moved out to Portland uh, about it's been about 17 years now. But when I first moved out, uh, I thought, you know what? I, I looked into some of the wrestling camps that they had out here. And there was a guy named Curdle De Beers and Playboy Buddy Rose, and they were wrestlers from the '80s that I had known, right? And uh, and they they worked with me some, and so I worked with with the group and trained on certain days, and they would give you like a character, like, hey, here's who you are, here's what it is. And one of the things I had come up with was this, uh, you know, just in, in practice and everything, kind of the persona was this, you know, kind of the the last rites, like you're done. And uh, so I would do this this cross uh, type of thing. So I'd focus it and do the cross. And, and when, when I'm on the stage, I'm playing a character. You know, you have to kind of come outside yourself and, and be, that, be that character because otherwise, for me at least, it, was, it allows me to do things that I may not think I can do consciously um, by creating the character and playing the character out there on the platform. And so that's kind of where that came from. And, and, and it wasn't even a conscious thing. I'd come out one time and just got ready and got focused and, and did it stomp my foot? And then, then somebody else replicated, like, you do this. And I said, oh, do I? And uh, yeah, so I guess it, it kind of stayed. It's the, but you do more than that. Yeah. You don't do you throw a grenade, or am I making this up now? You have to know you throw a grenade. You can't unconsciously throw a grenade in the room before dinner. But did I throw a grenade on the table? That has to be part of something. It's not a grenade, but it is the effect of it afterwards when you get when I give the boom and the stomp and the jump and all that. So, so it does it does have that factor to it. <laughs> what? So what is it? What are you throwing? What's what is the whole thing? Essentially, it's just a matter of, of you know when you're when you're out there. It's like it's essentially it's like game on. So when that okay. goes out and everything goes like that, and then when it hits, it's boom! You hit that there. It's like game on. That's when it's that's when it's time to go. That's when you it's turned up to eleven. <laughs> have you ever gone out there and not done it? Like you, you started doing it, but one of the lifts you didn't. Cause I'll tell you what, as a commentator, I see people coming up all the time with a million different setups. And the one time somebody doesn't, you're like, Oh, it's in his head. Now something's wrong. <laughs> something's off. I don't know. But now you've got me uh, concentrated on it. So I'm sure it's going to screw me up at some point. Oh no. That, nope. I'm going to go nope. for that world record uh, deadlift and uh, uh, <laughs> Mark and the guys that are out there, and 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 I'm sure they would love that. So <laughs> you're like, oh, my boom was off. Something happened there. It's in my head. I haven't competed in two years since COVID. That's also true. Oh, I'm all off now. Uh, Larry, what's a moment? Because you've been around since the '70s. What are what are a few LS LS does a Mount Rushmore of moments? My man LS has put me on the spot. I've given my Mount Rushmores a few times. What is a Mount Rushmore of moments for yourself? That, that you could collect over the years from the decades, 70s, 80s, 90s, two, early 2000s to now? What are some moments you think that you've seen? I think that the, probably the best moment for me um, 
as we started competing in the IPF, we were not particularly competitive. And the IPF, um, sometimes in their team awards, uh, doesn't translate to, to English very well. So in, in Germany, um, when we went to the Women's Worlds, we got our award, said relatively best nation. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. We, we, were, we, were, we were third place. And the next year, um, we, got, we got the silver medal as a team. And so when we went up to get the award, they discouraged teams coming up. But we did anyway because we're the USA and that's what we do. Um, and so I said on the microphone, we're, does that make us the almost best nation? <laughs> and that, that earned me no points. But the next year we won. And I got up and I, I stood there and I said, Two years ago, we were the relatively best nation. Last year, we we're the next best nation. And this year, we're the best nation. And, and the crowd was silent for a minute. And then everybody stood up and gave us a standing ovation. So that was probably it. First time we ever won the Open Worlds. And what year was that? 2005, I think. Oh, that's relatively recent. Yep. The, the, women's, the women's team has actually won several times since then, but that was the first time ever. Hmm. Um, Any, how about showdowns? What, is, what would be some of the biggest showdowns you saw? Like for myself, commentating at the World Championships, I think it still is the John Hack, Brett Gibbs showdown in 2016. Um, but we've had like battle of the 105s in certain years, et cetera. But that's the one that's, is out to me. Also, the 72s last year in Sweden, I think was something special. But um, what showdowns pop out to you over the years? Um, most of them are in, in terms of teams I've coached. And looking back the furthest um, in, in 2004 in France, when Priscilla won her first Worlds, um, we used to go head to head with the Russians and, um, and similarly head to head um, between me and the Russian coach. And um, so we know coming in, um, we all know what everyone can do. And as, as I said, coming into that meet, if Priscilla makes two squats, this meet is over. And, and so um, she got her second squat, it was 230 kilos and the Russian coach threw down his clipboard and left the venue because the meet was over. What? what? <laughs> if I was a lifter, I'd be like, my man, please. I got I to bench and deadlift. You're hurting my confidence to say, silver's <laughs> still on the table. Okay, let's gather ourselves. <laughs> so that, that was the sort of the all-time greatest head-to-head -head showdown um, between the lifters um, and between the coaching staff. Um, and it, it used to be um, far less friendly than it is today. Um, people would steal our stuff, and um, which is a problem when you're in gear if they take your deadlift suit and what have you. Holy smokes. Um, what are the things that, that happened? And here's another showdown, although it wasn't a showdown on the platform, um, but I coached a bench team in 1998 and James Henderson was on that team. 
Um, and as you recall, he benched with no shirt and benched um, 705 with no shirt. Um, and so coming into the competition, um, there was nobody in the ballpark, even in gear then. Um, and the only way under the old IPF rules, um, you had a minute to turn in your attempt and the table didn't set it for you. If you didn't turn in that attempt, you passed that attempt. And so um, James had to make more than one attempt. He opened at 628, um, but he had to make another attempt, whatever it happened to be. Um, and so as I went to turn in the attempt card to the table, all of the Russian coaches blocked my way to the table. Like a and, football team? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think. And, and, and so I stiff-armed one of them in the nose and broke his nose and handed in the attempt standing on his chest. <laughs> standing on his chest? Yep. My God, man. What year was this? 98? Yep. Oh, the 90s. Um, so um, that's a sort of a perspective on, on how the world used to work. It's a much more friendly world now. Yeah, I Better guess. organized. But, but that was a great showdown. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with James Henderson, but. Um, I, I am, but I, haven't, I never saw him lift. I, this is research after the fact. This is, that's a little before my time, but I am. Um, it's worth looking back at some of his videos. In, in that meet, um, and it was maybe the greatest bench press performance ever. No disrespect to later bench pressers, but um, his opener was 628. Um, he took it out himself. Um, he let it down to his chest and it sat there and he looked at all the spotters and he said, are you ready? And are you ready? And are you ready? And, and he crossed his leg and he pushed it. And what? Wait, 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 wait a second. <laughs> this is turning into the greatest story ever told, but it's a video of this because we have broken noses crossing this leg. This is amazing. And there is video of it? I'm sure there is. Okay, it, holy it was, moly. It was, it was showtime. It was like nothing anyone <laughs> had bet. ever seen. The, wow. The other, the other thing he did was um, he only warmed up with one plate and then two plates, and he went and sat in his sort of boxing hood out in the crowd. And so he'd be coming up, and we're in a, in a, a theater, basically, with a raised stage. And so he'd be about five out, and he'd get up, and the crowd is cheering him and ignoring everybody else. And he's making his way through the crowd um, and shaking hands with everybody. And up on the stage he goes and takes off the hood and destroys everybody it, ryan as as a w as a pro wrestling fan you gotta love this <laughs> what, why, was, do you, why do you think i wanted to get big <laughs> that's right that's right i think you might have a new favorite lifter my friend <laughs> right this guy sucks in the in the, in the rocky hoodie on the whole nine inside the crowd yep no kidding wow man i, I definitely gotta i gotta dive more in i mean i knew he's a phenomenal bencher but i hadn't seen you know the videos or heard the stories he, he was the greatest show on earth at the time. Gotta be. Uh, who's got that kind of flair and showmanship these days? Obviously, Screamer Manuel is, comes to mind off the top of my head, who really puts on a show. But, you know, we, we, I, I think, I mean, look, and I'm showing my, my age as well, because this is more of this modern time period. But for me, when Ray stomps his foot like a bull about to charge, 
and he's like back a little bit from the he hasn't approached the bar yet and you know he's kind of pacing a little bit and he's a humongous man larger than life and he's shaking his hand he's like stomping his feet it's like straight up a video game it's like holy smokes this guy's about to do some damage i when i see that live um i still get i get nervousness that for me is like one of the big events but um and i think ls you had said screamer manuel as well in terms of right before you saw him squat one time and got that as well because he brings that type of energy yeah man it's it's insane um like i uh like i said i've i've at least in the modern era, I've, I've pretty much been at every single, you know, huge squat, um, you know, moment. And as far as raw lifting goes, and I mean, I was, I've been there at every one of Ray's, you know, monumental squats. Um, and that that time when we were in Africa, everyone, like, I mean, I mean, now I, I don't think people even, under, I mean, now people really, really see Ray, you know, and when they think of that squat moment, obviously it's, it's, it's Ray Williams and him squatting over a thousand pounds. But at the time, the idea of a 93 squatting anything over, you know, 280 kilo was just what, you know? And um, I remember every, every time Screamer went up to squat, I'm talking big guys, little guys, girls, big men, women, children, everyone crowds in to watch this little guy, you know, go for 280. Cause I mean, let's be honest at, at the time, 280 was like milestone of milestone, you know? And, you don't even think about going over 300 kilograms. Yeah, kilograms. So um, he goes up to squat, you know, uh, that 280, and I just remember him pacing back and forth, back and forth. And again, at the time, I was like the first squatter. So like, I had all the time in the world to watch the guy go. And uh, seeing him just kind of wind up going back and forth, back and forth, that's honestly one of the most, at least for me, one of the most electrifying moments I've ever seen as far as squats go, period. Um, you know, I mean, and, you know, fast forward it, you know, I guess – a few years later, then of course, you know, obviously when, when Ray, you know, you know, clips that thousand pound barrier. Um, but to this day, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't have a lot of stories, but of the stories that I have, I mean, Screamer is one of the one of the very few that really commands that type of attention um, yeah. when it comes time for you know for the for the big show, regardless of it's squat, bench, deadlift. Um, it's just some people that just have that that knack, you know, that 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 flair. They can just really just you know just drop people in and then. He's definitely he's definitely one of the ones that comes to mind. So I'm excited to see what he does when he comes back. We need more people like that. I mean, it's when powerlifting is done right, it can be a show for people to watch. Some people are like powerlifting is boring. If you haven't seen Raw Nationals? I do want to say, Larry, who was it? The idea behind the prime time for U.S. Raw Nationals because that was a game changer. I feel like for the live stream viewing. To have done the prime time, I know logistically, as we've said before, like you're never going to have everyone happy with it. And there is, you know, some people have, have to compete and then the competition later goes on and you know what you have to lift to beat the people area that day. But in terms of viewing, to get people a product they can watch, and this is something that as a media guy, I can appreciate. I love the prime time idea, you know, and just having just the top contenders slug it out. Um, was that one of the major game changers and what, what kind of went behind that? And how did you guys come up with that idea and some of the ideas that came or some of the feedback you got when you decided to move in that direction? Well, it was, it was Josh Rohr's idea um, before Raw Nationals in Atlanta. Um, and we were wrestling with the issue of how do we get exposure to the best lifters? Um, and 
up until that time, most people basically came and went all during the day, but there was never a time to concentrate the crowd. And, and that was Josh's idea we implemented. And I have to say it went really great. Um, and we've done it since. Um, I can't, I can't really imagine us having a raw nationals without a prime time, honestly, whatever form we make it in. Um, it, it drew people, especially in terms of the live stream audience, it, it drew people at the start of the week, all the way through the week and held the crowd for a whole week. So, um, from our perspective, from a media perspective, it worked, but it also worked, I think for the lifters, because there's nothing better really than lifting and looking out there and seeing not one seat in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever, and I'll tell you what, for the viewership in terms of, in terms of making a sport that's digestible for the viewers, that's what you need. You need the all killer, no filler, you know, and that's, that's sort of knocking anybody else. Look at man, how many people are going to be within the same ballpark of like Taylor Atwood and, and Russell Orhe and some of these individuals, you got to be close enough to make it a battle and make it interesting. Um, I, and I think the, the prime time was a major push in terms of popular, uh, making the sport more popular. These are things that got that are going to draw people in when people hear about powerlifting and they're like, what's the biggest show? And like, well, if you're in the U S raw nationals and you tune in, it has to be entertaining, exciting, you mm -hmm. know, and you see the background, the music and whatnot, you're like, I want to be a part of this. And you need someone you look up to and you're like, I want to be Russell Orhe. Right or I want to be Taylor Atwood. I'm never gonna have his hair, but I might have his squat. You know what I mean? Like it's you need you need that. So I think that was huge. Um, in terms of in terms of like the progress I'd seen as the president, what are some of the things that you think you would you would hang your hat on? Not just like you said, that wasn't your idea, but it was during your presidency. Um, what are some of the biggest jumps you've seen during your presidency that have taken place? that you're like, you know what, that was a major plus for us. That was a, that was a big one. I, I think, if I think about it, probably the one that, um, obviously all of the things we've done with Raw Nationals as our sort of leader in drawing the crowd is one, but the, the thing that drove all that, and the thing that drove our desire to make a, a show um, has been the Arnold. From our sort of humble beginning there with, with banners stuck up to the curtains in the back and to video walls and production and music. Um, that's been the biggest thing. And it's, I think it's really changed the face of powerlifting from sort of a, a dry, boring sport um, to a rock concert. I mean, that's why over the course of, of those three days, 400,000 people go through our venue. Um, yeah. I, I think that's the big, thing making it exciting and palatable for the public it yeah. is it is a hell of a show some say the best show in powerlifting some say second best some say yep. the world's is yeah <laughs> we'll we'll agree to disagree my friend but uh no you want i look at, i remember when my friend was going to the arnold classic and i was trying to watch the live stream and by watch the live stream i mean they showed the scorecard and I was refreshing the page and I would see the weight of, you know, the scorecard turn either red or green. And that mean he made or didn't make a lift. And now the stream is absolutely beautiful. 
uh, it's so action. You're right. It's it's like it's action rock concert right to the end, and it's entertaining. To I'm sure the live. I've never been there live, but I'm sure the live is absolutely phenomenal as well. I'm told. You guys even have. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's like a baseball game where you even have booze and concessions at, at some of these events. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> to have a beer, have a hot dog, like you're at a baseball game. Like that's the stuff people did in the 50s with their dads going to baseball games, and you could do that now at powerlifting meets. Yep, exactly. And that, that's important for the public. Hopefully not the lifters so much, but the public. <laughs> yeah. Well, stay tight with those spots, boys. It's going to be a rough one. Um, when all is said and done, and, and, you're, and you're going to like step down as president, you're like, look, I can't do this anymore. First off, before I get to that, okay. Do you see that coming? Do you see yourself in the future being like, look, at, this is not an easy job. You're 24-7 on. Decisions you make impact the Federation, impact thousands of lifters, and then not just impact you, but you say, due to social media and the way some things get, it can impact people around you. And it can be very tough. It can be difficult. It's not an easy job. You know, that's what I'm, I'm a huge UFC fan. And Dana White, president of UFC, UFC says, everybody thinks they want my job, but if they had my job, they think twice about it. Do you see yourself, how long do you think you want it? You might want to make a push for this or is there no end in sight? You're not really considering that, A. And then, you know, answer that question first. I'll double up with my question after is my next question. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Um, I, I thought I would last two or maybe three terms. Um, this is my sixth. Um, and I, I figured that, um, that we would sort of mentor along my replacement. Um, the, the more people know about what the office of the president is like, the less they want the job. Um, and, and so I've, I've mentored a handful of people over the years who were going to be my successor um, who came to their senses and didn't run for the position. Um, Johnny Graham is an obvious choice, but I don't think he wants the job either. Honestly, um, his last response was, Oh, hell no. <laughs> well, that's, um, yeah, well, that's <laughs> not subtle. That's on the nose. That's <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, I'd like to see someone come along um, who could pick up the ball and run with it. Um, I, one of the things that um, I think is sort of my strength is, as, as you probably know, I'm a forensic psychologist and ex professional expert witness. Um, that is very similar to what I do here, honestly. Um, and I would hope that someone with with the ability to deal with persistently adversarial situations would come along. Um, I don't want to do this forever. I'm, I'm now in my sixties. Um, I, I started in my twenties um, in powerlifting and it's been a long run. Um, I, I'd like the next guy or woman, whichever doesn't matter to me to come along at some point. So I could, um, help them along before I exit the stage. Right. Yeah. It's not something, you, you know, maybe in generations previous, it would have been a little more easy to come in. It's just about powerlifting. But as we've found out just in this discussion alone on this podcast, 
that's not really the sign of the times anymore. You're, you're in all types of stuff now in this position, more than, you know, I mean, it's, it's an extremely tough role. Um, so yeah, you think a mentorship would definitely be the best route, but then you got that someone walks in there, steps into the mentorship and is like, wow, well, this is a whole heck of a lot. There's a lot to go with this and you have a lot of responsibility and, and, uh, you're going to take a lot of complaints and not a lot of thank yous, I'd assume, but that's, uh, it's kind of part and partial when you're, you're serving the public, right? When, when all is said and done, let's say you found your mentor, you're, you feel comfortable with it. Or, or sorry, you've mentored somebody, you found your apprentice, and, um, and they're going to take over the role. And you step down, and now you're, you're relaxed on your patio, having a couple beers, a couple airplanes flying by, and you're thinking back. How do you want to be remembered? As the person who stayed true to the mission of um, the American Drug-Free Powerlifting Association, that, that there's value in a drug-free platform and we've done our best to, to keep it that way. Fair enough. LS, you got, you got some questions, my friend? Oh man, you hit every one of them. You literally hit every one of them. How about you, Ryan? You got you any questions for the president while we have them? We, it's been, fellas, we're going on close to two and a half hours. First off, let me say to all three of you gentlemen, much appreciate you know, your time, energy, everything coming into this. Um, and you guys, I was the last guy in on this. So you guys put this together. So I greatly appreciate, you know, you guys bringing me into the fold and give me your time as well on top of that. Is, is there any questions you wanted on there as well, Ryan? Well, we have I don't, I don't think so. I think that we've, we've got most things. Uh, I think the only thing I would ask is, is the current structure and our hierarchy that we have set up to address what we want to do in the future. So if we have 22,000 members right now, what would it take to be, you know, if we went 30,000 members, does that change the structure um, that we currently have? It, it wouldn't change it significantly. And one of the most important and effective things we, we've done over the years is, is to hire an executive director um, who manages many of the business aspects day to day. Um, without prior to that time, we were basically just a working board and we all did the work day in and day out. Um, but it's bigger than that. Now the the significant change would be a further evolution, um, more specialization in terms of staff and, and probably more staff. That, that being said, um, staff wise, we've always been very conservative. And when I look out there at the other NGBs, because of COVID or shut down, they're borrowing short-term money and vacating their offices. And um, because we have been so austere in terms of staff and, and really probably worked them to death, um, we haven't had to do those things. Um, but to get bigger, we'll have to continue to expand and we'll have to have more in the way of specialization. Um, but the, the basic structure is here now. Perfect. Well, there I'm we good. go. There we go, gentlemen. Um, let's let everybody know where they can find you on social media before we let everybody go. We can start with you, Ryan. Uh, Ryan Stills underscore powerlifter on Instagram. Uh, it's probably the best way to see me. And are you doing any coaching? 
so I, I, I do own a gym, Odd Barbell, out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, we are a training-based gym, powerlifting-based. Um, I do some uh, online, but it's predominantly uh, uh, my day job keeps me plenty busy. And uh, so, so anything I do online is normally uh, um, people that have requested. So if you do have requests, we can do it that way. But it is a small group. Gotcha. Anybody you want to thank before we let you go? Uh, for me, uh, I'd like to, well, thank you, Larry, for the time. Uh, so I think that is huge. And I know that this is a, this is also a vulnerable place for you because I know that you don't do this as frequently. Uh, you're not big on social media. You don't um, really put it out there. And I, I think that this is a good opportunity to kind of pull back the curtain to see Oz, uh, as I think we've, we've joked before. Um, but I, I know that that's, this is, you know, something that is, um, I, you know, you're, you're well-spoken. Um, so it's not like you avoid it because you would embarrass yourself, but I think that you're often behind the scenes. And so I think taking this opportunity and being out there and, and being vulnerable, I appreciate that. And so, so thank you for that. Thank you. My man, LS, how, uh, how do people reach you, sir? Are you, are you doing coaching, sir? People, like online, are you accepting people right now? Or are you, uh, uh, you know, oh, you know, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm accepting. Uh, I, I actually, I think I have like three spots left. I try to keep it manageable because um, I'm pretty much 24 seven with my people. Um, yeah, I'm, you can reach me at LS McLean, um, pretty much everything, all social media platforms. Uh, or you can go to my website, lsmcclain.com and, uh, you know, fill out the uh, inquiry and all that stuff. And, um, we can, we can get you rocking and rolling. Um, but aside from that, man, I am, um, yeah, coaching and more coaching. Um, on top of that, I mean, obviously, thank you, Larry. Uh, thank you, Six Pack. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Um, yeah, man. Um, anyone that's tuning into this, thank you guys for, for, for taking the time to listen, man. Um, this is, uh, this is certainly unprecedented in terms of, of any type of, uh, uh, federation president, uh, willing to sit down and, and do an interview. Um, and making it about the federation and not about himself. So that's 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 super dope. I appreciate you for that, Larry. It, it means a lot. Um, and again, uh, I mean, I say it a million times. I'll say it a million and one. David Ricks, thank you so much uh, for paving the way and, and showing me how it's done. Um, definitely without y'all, would I be here? Um, yeah, thank you guys. And you'll be crushing those podcasts, my friend. I see yeah, you. man. Putting them out, good stuff, my man. Boy, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, I got literally have twelve coming. Like I'm talking back to back, <laughs> back to podcasts and all that. Obviously, all of that's on 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 the website uh, as far as podcasts and all that, man. So um, we're, we're actually pretty pretty fortunate. Let me mention uh, Taylor Atwood. Uh, got some stuff for him. Got some stuff for Fred Gibbs coming up. Um, yeah, uh, got a lot of uh, got a lot of good stuff coming, man. But yeah. Um, you know, all that stuff, like I said, is on uh, via social media and everything. So uh, everyone will know when that's coming up. There we go. And yeah, uh, kind of echoing what Ryan said, Larry, it isn't, not very many Federation heads make themselves available. You even knew ahead of time we were going to open up questions to the public. And um, I mean, we got so many questions, so I had to just basically crunch them down at the topics. We did word for word every question. There'd be like, 30 questions for the same topic, but um, I'm not lying. I posted every question, moved it into topic, and we hit every single one of them on this conversation. That's got to be said for something like, whatever people are going to say, the USCAPL president 
came onto the podcast and hit every single topic and we discussed it. So, uh, I mean, that goes for a lot and I, I greatly appreciate it. And I hope everybody listening and, and all the lifters appreciate the fact that, you know, you made yourself that kind of available. You knew ahead of time, we're going to open up to the public. You knew ahead of time, we're going to take some questions. You knew ahead of time, there, there might be some tough questions and you hit them all up and, uh, and sat down with us and had this conversation. It is unprecedented and it is much appreciated, Mr. President. So thank you very much. Uh, hopefully see you at a powerlifting competition, but God knows when that'll be. But <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Or do you actually coach people that people can reach out to you or? Um, I basically pick a few people I work with. Um, I, I just honestly don't have time to do a good job with them um, between work and, and this. Yeah. Um, so I coach people mostly at the elite level um, and a handful. Right, right. Gotcha. So you wouldn't be putting out contact information to people reach out. You're not, put it this way, you're not accepting clients right now. Yep, that's right. That's right. Okay, fair enough. Listen, everybody, thank you for coming on the podcast. Much appreciated. Let's keep in touch, and hopefully we all see each other at a powerlifting competition in the near future. All right, guys. Very good. See you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Take it easy.